0: Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I've had something brewing in my heart For a number of months now, and uh, there's just some of it has been brewing in my heart this week as well, so we're just going to jump into the thick of it. We're going to see where we're going to come out, but uh, I believe that the Lord is wanting to prepare us as a people for his presence. Now, I didn't use all those Ps because I'm a preacher. It just came out that way, but I do believe he wants to prepare us as his people for his presence, and If we we understand the ways of God, we will prepare ourselves. Uh, And there's things that God will do to prepare us as well. And so let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. The context here is David has just become the king of all of Israel. Prior to that, seven years earlier, David was crowned king of the tribe of Judah. And so David reigned for seven years over Judah. And now all all the other tribes came to David and said, listen, uh, you know, we, we know the prophecies over you. Uh, God had already earmarked you for leadership, so we're asking you, be, rule over all of us. And it was a fulfillment of the, the, the word over David's life. And it was his final anointing, so to speak. David had three anointings in his life. He had the anointing under Samuel, where we had, he had the anointing to rule, but no outlet to do so. He had an anointing and no throne. And during that season... Saul ended up with a throne with no anointing. Having an anointing without a throne is frustrating, but having a throne without an anointing is devastating. David had a call, but there was no outlet. And that, the, God will often call us to things before He releases us into it. And that frustration, that time between feeling called and being released into what He's called us to is a necessary season in our life where God does a, a work And often people, the scripture says, many are called, but few are chosen. Isaiah says that God chooses in the furnace of affliction. There are many that are called, but are never launched. They're never chosen to move into what God has called them to, because they don't pass the test between the call and the commission. And David, there was his first anointing, David was called, and God launched him into this thing. And that anointing first brought him into great notoriety because he killed Goliath, but very quickly brought great opposition to his life. And the guy that was sitting on the throne began to come gun for his life. Well, not gun, because he didn't have guns back then, but he he was after him. He was trying to kill him. And so there was this season of David's life that was very necessary. ...for what God was going to break him into. And then David became, he had a partial uh, inheritance. uh, He was anointed to rule over a partial promise... ...when the uh, tribe of Judah anointed him with his second anointing. And so the first anointing was that anointing... ...where the Spirit of God came on him, gave him a promise... ...but he had no outlet. The second anointing was when the tribe of Judah anointed him... ...and now he was ruling over a partial inheritance... Part of the calling that God had called him to. But there was as well a frustration of that. But David was in training for reigning. Ruling over a few, he would be made. If he was found faithful, he would be put over many. And that's exactly what happened in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so David is made king over all of Israel. And again, the anointing brought opposition, it brought favor and opposition, and it always will. And so the Philistines heard he was made king over all of Israel. And so they came against David. David mopped him up. And then we get in chapter 6. So the first thing that happened to David when he was made king over all Israel was the enemy arose and tried to attack him. The second thing, see there was something on the enemy's agenda and there was something on David's agenda. The enemy's agenda is we're going to bring our present into his sphere of influence. And we're we're going to try to uproot David's rulership. But David had an agenda, and it was to get God's presence in his sphere of influence. And so David wanted to bring the Ark of God front and center. Up until this time, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was, it was also called the Ark of His Presence, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been in Cariath Jerem for 20 years. Now that's significant. It was in koriath Jerem for 20 years at the house of Abinadab. And David, it says he gathered all the able-bodied young men, 30,000 in all, and he's going to get the ark of God and bring it to Jerusalem. You see, David was somebody who had had been hooked by a hunger for the things of God many, many years earlier. I often wondered over the years, what, what was it that motivated David's heart? What's the backstory on this guy? Why did David hunger for the presence of God like he did. There were many others that were being raised in Israel at that time that didn't have the hunger that David did. And that hunger, that 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 uh, declaration from God, the way God would refer to him, is he is a man after my own heart. That word after is an action word. He was in hot pursuit of the heart of God. And so what was it about David that was after God? Well, the back story is that David had heard of this ark being in Cariath Jerem as a young man, if you start cross-referencing, David was 33 years old when he ruled over all of Israel. So if you do the math, if the Ark of the Covenant had been in Cariath- Jerem for 20 years, you do, you do the math, and David was 13 years old when it arrived in Cariath Jerem. In Psalm 132, it's one of my favorite passages. And Solomon, I know, I got a lot. It's a Solomon, I, I believe Solomon wrote the, the, wrote the chapter, uh, or that psalm. Matter of fact, let's turn there. We'll get back to this passage in a moment. Psalm 132. And listen to what it says. A song of a sense. It's one of those, those songs of a sense that... There were 15 psalms starting with Psalm 20 through Psalm 134 that they were called the Songs of Ascent. And they would sing those uh, on their way up the stairs at the Temple Mount on the south side. There were 15 stairs, 15 psalms. They would step up on one and they would sing it. And then they would step on the other one and they'd sing it. And this is one of them. Now, so it's part of the text. That's not just something scholars added. That's part of the text. It was a Song of Ascent. There is a... a uh, Literal meaning that, hey, it was one of the songs they sang as they ascended the Temple Mount to get close to the Ark of His Presence, but there's also a spiritual application. What it's saying is this, is a, this, this song holds some of the secrets to going higher in God. It's one of the, one of the songs that, that hold the keys to how do we get closer to God's presence And so we read this psalm, and it's it's such a fascinating psalm. We've talked about this one before, especially verse 1. Oh, Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. Some translations, oh, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Isn't that a weird prayer? You're praying, reminding God about how a dead guy suffered. Most of us would never think of praying that way. God, I want to remind you all that my dad went through. We don't think of God. We don't even think of reminding God of something. He knows everything. But that's the whole purpose of memorials. There's there's language in the scripture that says, and this came up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor. It was a a memorial. It reminded the Lord. You see that same language in in the book of Acts. there's, There's a passage where the offerings of an unsaved man brought him before the throne as a memorial. It brought his, and, and there, then Peter had an angelic encounter and went and shared the gospel and the guy got saved because his offerings brought him before the Lord as a memorial. I said, we, we, we think of God in such sterile terms that, well, God remembers everything, I don't need to remind him. No, this is relationship here. God longs for us to remind him And Solomon understands that the the price his dad paid, because the context is the price he paid to bring the presence of God and create a place for the presence, he's saying, God, I want to remind you of the price my dad paid to get your presence before the people. Because he understood that that moved the heart of God and Solomon could use that as intercessory leverage to move the heart of God in that moment in time. Because God's very relational. It moved his heart. And so Solomon says, oh Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. And then he he reminds the Lord of an oath that his father made to the Lord. Now interestingly enough, in this passage, it says David made an oath to the Lord. Then later on in the passage, it says God made an oath to David. There was this mutual exchange of commitment going on here between David and the Lord. And that is why Solomon is praying this prayer, because the commitment that God made to Solomon was that if your children will serve me, you'll never fail to have one sitting upon the throne. So he's reminding God, hey, God, remember that promise you made to my dad? Well, I'm now on the throne, and I'd like you to come through on that one. It's what he's doing. He's praying for God's blessing upon his reign in Jerusalem, and he's using David's prayer David's oath to move the heart of God and reminding God of his oath so that God will back Solomon in his reign and it's it's a legitimate thing to do so it says he swore an oath now here's the thing how did Solomon know that David said this to the Lord we see this same thing going on in the Proverbs where, where Solomon is writing and he said as a young boy I sat at my father's feet at my mother's knee and my dad would say Son, remember these things. You see, David instructed his son. He was pouring into him, investing in him and in the things of God. And I believe that David let Solomon in on a backstory, And some of it was from his childhood, from around 13 to 17 years old, that little window of time, something that happened in David that would change his life, hook his heart, and transform it and, and set him on a trajectory from which David would never Deviate. There was something that happened. And he alludes to it in this passage. And we know it was in that window of time because we know when the Ark of the Covenant arrived, 20 years earlier. And we know about the time that David was summoned to serve in the court of Saul. So somewhere in that time period, 13 to 17 years old, something happened and Solomon says what happened. He said... He swore an oath to the Lord, David did, and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And it's talking about that that vow that David made as king, saying, God, I'm going to make a place for you. I want to build you a temple. And we know that he asked Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan said, do whatever's in your heart to do. But that was not a word from the Lord, that was a word from Nathan. It was good, it was just compassionate counsel from a prophet. Nathan went and got with the Lord, and the Lord said no. And so Nathan circled back around and said, you're not the one to build the temple. Your son will be the one, because you have blood on your hands. You've shed innocent blood. But, so what David did is he, he stored up resources and preparations for, for his son to co- swing back around and fulfill the call that David wanted to, call, to, to fulfill. That's, that's a good little picture for us as dads. We may not be able to accomplish all that's in our hearts, but what we can do is we can store up resources, spiritual and otherwise, so that the next generation can fulfill what God has put within our heart. Matter of fact, your dream is not big enough. If you can fulfill it, even with the hand of God in one generation. If you can accomplish all that's in your heart, you need to knock the sides off your dream box and dream bigger. You need to begin to dream to the third and fourth generation. There needs to be things in our heart that we're, we're multi-generational in our, our dreaming with God. And so David made this vow, and, and Solomon reminds God of it, and then he, he reminds God of his vow to David... But in between there, there's this little phrase, and different translations translate this, not, not the words, but the source of the words differently. Because if you look in the NIV, which, with which I disagree where they're putting the quotation marks, they put the quotation mark from three through five, which I just just read to you. But I believe that also, it goes way down to verse six. This is also the words of David. These are not the words of Solomon in verse 6. Solomon picks up in verse 7, and one of the reasons I believe Solomon was the one that wrote this is because if you read what Solomon says in verse 7 and following, he says the same things, he's, he's, he's expressing the same things to the Lord at the dedication of the temple. So this is the heart of Solomon. But this these words, what he says, this we heard about it in Ephathra. We ran into it in the fields of of Jar, that sentence was not from Solomon because the the Ark of the Covenant was not in the fields of Jar when Solomon was alive. It was already in Jerusalem. It was already uh, in Hebron, and, and it had already been moved. It was it was it was it had been moved from Cariahth Jerem years earlier by his father. Those were the words of David. So what's he referring to? Well, again. The Ark of the Covenant, when David was about 13 years old, had been moved, and it it was placed at the house of Abinadab, because under Saul's regime, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and God said, I I will dwell between the cherubim, I will meet with you there, it it bore the the presence of God, and under Saul's regime, it was only, the 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 presence was only utilized, it was only valuable in times of crisis. And so they would bring it out when they're going to go to war, and they trusted in it to get gain a victory, even though they weren't living right. And it was captured, and the enemy grew tumors because they, they had it in their proximity. So they sent it back. That's a long story. They sent it back, and they ended up putting it in Cariahth Jerem, or another phrase, another uh, way that Cariath Jerem was referred to was this word jar. So David said. We heard about it in Ephothra. We ran into it in the fields of Jar or Kariath-Jerim. So what is Ephothra? Ephothra is another name for the city of Bethlehem, the city that the angels referred to as the city of David. David was raised in Bethlehem. And when the Ark of the Covenant arrived in the fields of Jar, when it arrived in Cariath jerim which is not far from Bethlehem, David being a shepherd boy, the one tending his dad's sheep, David would be out in the fields, and, and the rumor mill began to spin, and he began to hear rumors. Hey, you know that ark that you heard about from a little boy? Remember the scrolls that the rabbis would teach about, and that ark that Moses built, and that God dwells between the cherubim? It's near us. It's now being housed in Kariath-Jerim, and it says that David heard about it and something stirred in his young heart but more than that it says we came upon it in the fields of jar that's all we know we don't know any more about david's encounter with the presence of god other than it was so impactful that he passed that on to his son solomon and solomon whatever david said it caused solomon to tie that into the vow that David made that said, God, I will not sleep. I'll give myself no rest until you, your presence, has a resting place in my kingdom. David was ruined for the norm. He was ruined for anything else because as a young boy, somewhere between seventeen or 13 and 17, David had an encounter with the Ark of the Covenant, and he would never be the same. And so David has been consumed as a boy. And now all these years later, somewhere between, you know, 17 and 20 years later, David is now bringing this ark to him. It's been in the forefront of his mind. We were talking in the school yesterday. It's fascinating to me how David was obsessed with two things, if you read behind the scenes. David was obsessed with this city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was obsessed with the Ark of the Covenant. There was something about those two things. But in fact, when David was a young man and he killed Goliath, and it's fascinating to me that David confronted Goliath around the time that the Ark of the Covenant arrived in his proximity. That around the time David starts having encounters with the manifest presence of God, All of a sudden, David becomes this heroic young man. He's unknown until that time. And yeah, Samuel comes and uncorks a horn of oil and douses his his head and just drenches in the, the anointing oil, but there was something of a hunger that was awakened in David's heart, and so it begs the question, I don't have the answer, was it that the hunger in David's heart, the fact that he was after God's own heart, did that attract the presence and cause god to put the ark by him or was it the arrival of the ark that awakened something in david or was it both i don't know but i do know this that when the presence of god arrives all of a sudden heroes begin to arise i remember how many of you ever see the early brownsville videos You can still get them on YouTube. Look at those things online. You look at Richard Crisco. He was the the youth pastor at the time. He now pastors up in Michigan. Smoking man of God. I have so much respect for him. But you look at the day that revival broke out. I mean, it just, it was like a bomb went off in that church. Their, Their morning service went to about three in the afternoon and they carried people out, they came back that night, and they didn't go home until the sun was coming up the next day. And it just launched them into about five years, six years of outpouring. It was an amazing move of God. Millions of people were touched. But if you look at that early service, they give Richard Crisco the, the microphone to sing uh, while they're we're praying for people, and he's so timid. He's just this kind of embarrassed, timid young man, just Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We will come rejoicing. You know, kind of timid, man. You look, you look about five months into that thing. That guy breathes fire. He's got laser beams for eyes. I mean, that guy's packing power. He was an animal. They would call the school system. Would call and say, Hey, you got to come down here. We've got kids laid out in our classrooms. They actually set for a season. They set aside a classroom for kids who were out under the power in the secular school. Kids were getting saved left and right. It was an amazing move of God. But all of a sudden, these people who were normal Joes and Janes, unassuming people, were thrust into the international scene and are still running the nations to this day. Why? Because like Saul, when the anointing came on them, they became a different person. They were forever changed. And David had this encounter that ruined him for life. And so David tells Solomon, he said, listen, when I was a boy, I heard rumors that the presence was near my house. And and I started taking my sheep to a different field. I started going near the fields of Jar because something was drawing me. I'd heard stories, and I wasn't satisfied to just hear stories. I had to get near I had to see if possibly this thing was real. If what I had heard, it was, was it too good to be true or was the, were these stories true? And David got hooked by the presence of God. And now all these years later, David is getting to fulfill the dream in his heart. He conquered Jerusalem when he became the king of Judah. This guy, these, these were some bad dudes, Okay. When, when, when David killed Goliath, he took Goliath's head. He didn't just leave it there. He took it with him. Imagine that, you know, dragging it by the beard. It was a big head. Where'd David go? Just follow the blood trail. There he, you know where he went? He went to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was not a godly city. It was occupied by the Jebusites at that time. Why did David take the head of Goliath And just set it down there. I believe it was a prophecy. And David was saying, when I'm king, I'm coming after you next. Because there was something in David's heart that wanted that city. Why? Because David understood that there was this ancient king that David had revelation about that nobody else had about. He's the only other guy that mentions this king other than Moses. And then in the the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews mentions this guy. It was this guy called Melchizedek. And he was a priest king. And David understood this guy was a priest and had access to God that others don't have. And so David realized this guy, you know, where, you know where Melchizedek ruled from? He was the king of Salem or Shalom, a city of peace, the prince of peace. He was a foreshadow of Christ. But Salem eventually became Jerusalem. And David understood there's something of an inheritance on that throne that I want. And when there's a crown on my head, I'm going to take this city and put my throne in that city. Even as a young man, David had this revelation about the significance of this city. And so now David wants to bring the ark, and that's where we pick up the story. Let's look back at 2 Samuel chapter 6. Verse 1 David again brought together all the able young men of Judah, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up there the ark of God, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Bala is just another word for kariath Jerem. Verse 3. There they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 7 that this ark eventually resided in that place for 20 years. So now this is the end of that 20-year cycle. And uh, it was on the hill. Uh, Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it and David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. And so, I mean, they, this is a celebration. Think about this. This is a parade of 30,000 able-bodied young men. And they're dancing before the Lord. They've got music. And they are, they are going after it. They are, they are dancing. They're celebrating. And they're bringing the ark on this cart. And David is so happy. This has been a dream in his heart since he was a young teenager. Finally, I'm in the city that, I'm gonna, that I wanted to dedicate to the Lord. I have that throne, and now I'm going to bring the ark of his presence to this place, and David is so happy. And then this happens. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out to hold the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there before the ark of God. I want you to think about that. What a shock that must have been to King David. David's motives were pure. David had been dreaming of getting the ark of God. He was the man who made a vow, God, I will not give myself rest until you have a resting place. And he's in that process of bringing it and all of a sudden the oxen stumble at the threshing floor and so Uzzah reaches up to steady the ark and the Lord strikes him dead and he falls down. Verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this Day, this place is called Perez Uzzah, or the breakout against Uzzah. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Verse 10, This, this is a stunning statement. Think about this. We know the backstory, All these years of dreaming. And it says, He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. This dream that this king had been carrying in his heart since he was just a young teenager, he's in the process. And there was a bump in the road in the process. And it so jarred him, it so shocked him what happened, that David said, I'm not willing. I'm not willing to bring the presence of God to me in the city of David. It's a stunning thing. We usually don't think of David as unwilling to get near the presence. But there was a season in David's life where that was true. It was a 90-day period. David was so offended at what God did There was a pause in his pursuit. And you see this kind of scenario all through the scriptures where people who are seeking God and something happens and there's, it's like they meet another side of God they, didn't, they weren't aware of up until that time. They thought they knew him. And all of a sudden God manifests another side of his character. And there's a pause in their pursuit, and it's like, whoa, they take a step back and they're not sure. They're, they're recalibrating the cost to this thing of relationship with God. They put a distance between themselves and the presence of God. It's a sobering thing, but I'm here to tell you it's a necessary thing. David was asking the question, how. Can I ever get the presence of God unto me? And that's a good question. You see David assumed he already knew the answer until they hit a bump in the road at the threshing floor of Aruna. or the threshing floor of Nacon there was another threshing floor David sacrificed at when the Lord disciplined him another time. There's something about these threshing floors, especially with David. We talked about the threshing floor a couple of weeks ago. Remember, a threshing floor is at the high place in a field where they'll get the harvest in, and they'll throw all the, the freshly harvested grain on the threshing floor. And so the fresh, threshing floor is a, a, a place where they're going to tamp down all the clay. If there's not clay in the soil, they'll bring in clay and they'll make this a hard table area and they'll put all the, all the grain on there and then they run it over with a large, like a wheel, like a, a big stone wheel, a very heavy wheel and they'll crush the grain because the grain, there's an outer husk that keeps that which is usable from being usable. And so they got to break that husk it's re- which is referred to as chaff. And so the, that husk is broken under the pressure of the threshing wheel, and then what they do next, and this is why it's on a high place in the field, they get what's called a winnowing fork. It's reminiscent of what, the, what John talked about with Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He said, he said, there's the one coming after me, the one whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. He said, he... He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost in fire and the winnowing fork is already in his hand. He's going to separate the grain from the chaff and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fork was this, it was a pitchfork that they would use to throw the grain up in the air and the, the chaff was of lighter weight than the grain. The grain had weight to it. It was substantial. It was something that was going to feed people. But the chaff was fluff. And so the wind would catch it and blow it away. It would separate when exposing it to the wind and the the grain would fall back down on the threshing floor and they would continue to do that until the chaff was removed. And usually they would just let it blow away. But there's something about Jesus that is so zealous about separating you from that which is unusable in your life that he burns it up. He gathers the chaff. Most farmers just let it blow away. Jesus then gathers the chaff and it says he burns it up with unquenchable fire. God is zealous about removing that fluff from our life, that stuff that isn't usable. And it happens at a threshing floor. It's not a coincidence that David, on the, in the process of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the, the presence of God unto him, when they hit the threshing floor, something happens. And their, their view of God is edited. And it causes David to step back and pause. And he's not sure he wants to bring the Ark of God to him. Because the price is higher than he realized. One of the dangers about intimacy with God, and you heard me right, there's a danger in intimacy with God because that intimacy can breed a familiarity that creates an assumption that we already know all about Him. And so when somebody comes with the revelation of a facet of His nature that we are not familiar with, we can reject it. When God arrives in a way we didn't expect, that we can outright reject that thing and say, God would never do that. Oh, is that true? So you're such an expert that you know how God always arrives. You see, that familiarity can breed an arrogance in our heart. And God has many facets to his character. There's many sides to his character. And we've got to be very, very careful that in becoming so familiar with one facet of his character, that we don't reject another one that seems to be at antithesis with it. There's a tension in the character of God. Romans 11, verse 22 says this, Consider, therefore, it means keep it in the forefront. Always hold this in consideration. Have these as the two lenses to the glasses of your theology. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of god you see it's not just the kindness of god that holds us in check the love of god constrains us second corinthians chapter 5 it's the passage where paul says he says, we are, we've been given the, the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation. We go to people, be reconciled to God. Listen, God wants to have relationship with you. And there's something that burns within us. Listen, God's giving you an invitation and I'm here to give it to you. Be reconciled. In that passage, Paul gives the two great motivators to his ministry. He says in one verse, he says, the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ is holding and pulling on my heart. A few verses later, he says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The terror of the Lord. It's that same concept that Paul is dealing with in Romans 11. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. There's that tension between those two. And both are valid sides to his character. And we can get so caught up in one that we outright reject the other. All through scripture, you have men who thought they knew the Lord in his fullness. Only to have the Lord show up in a way they weren't familiar with. And they they backed away. They paused in their pursuit. They were like, whoa. John, the beloved, who would lay his head on on Jesus' chest when Jesus walked the earth. That's pretty intimate. I'm a little uncomfortable with that as a man, to be honest with you. I know this is Jesus, but Jesus was a man at that time. He was was living as a human being, and they're eating dinner, and John, the young teenage disciple, the youngest of the disciples, is just leaning there with his head on his chest. That's, That's pretty intimate. John knew Jesus. I would argue that John had a closer relationship with Jesus than any of the disciples. And it bred in him a courage that none of the others had because John was the only one that stuck it out at the cross with Jesus. Because John saw himself, how did he refer to himself in his gospel? The one whom Jesus loved. John was so impacted by the love of God, every time he'd look in the mirror and say, there he is. The one who Jesus loves. And because Jesus first loved him, it was John who brought us the revelation. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. John was hooked by love. But John the Beloved, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, when the Lord shows up, John, who laid his head on Jesus' chest, now lays as a dead man because Jesus showed up in a different way. And John didn't recognize him to be the Jesus. He was taken aback. And And the Lord had to reach out and put his hand on him and say, Rise, fear not. Again and again throughout scripture. We see the Lord arriving in a way that strikes fear only to have the Lord say, fear not. Matter of fact, Exodus twenty twenty, Easy verse to remember. God comes down on the mountain because Moses brings the children of Israel to the mountain and all, he says, we're going to meet the Lord today. Get yourself prepared. Clean yourself up. Uh, and we're, we're going we're gonna to meet before the Lord. Everybody, man, make sure there's nothing in your life that would grieve the Lord. And then the next day, this cloud descends. There's peals of thunder. There's lightning. There's, there's, uh, the, the whole mountain is shaking. There's trumpet sound coming out of the cloud because the Lord has come down. And the people are scared spitless. And they say, to, they say to Moses, listen, why don't you go up there and talk to him and then come back and let us know what he said. We don't need to talk to him, Okay. And you know what Moses says, Exodus twenty twenty. He said, fear not. The Lord has come so that you may fear him, and you won't sin. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Don't be afraid, guys. The reason God did this is so you'll be afraid. And they're really two versions of the same word. It's not like, well, in, in the Hebrew, there's, no. They're different tenses, like, of the same root word. In reality, the only time you don't need to be afraid of God, the only time you need to be afraid of God is when you don't fear him. And the only time you don't need to be afraid is when you fear him. Because the fear of the Lord, see, what Moses said was, God God did this because he's proving you, he's testing you, so that you will fear him and you will not sin. That's what he said. It's the idea of like, when you take metal and you test it, you prove it, you put it in the fire to strengthen it, and God was giving them an encounter to shock them, to see a facet of his character that they didn't expect, and in seeing him in that way, they would walk under the fear of the Lord for the rest of their life. God was graciously showing them a side of his character that would register on their heart and and, and permanently... Change how they view him and how they live their lives. Fear not. The Lord has done this so you will fear him. Why am I talking about this? Because I believe that the body of Christ, I believe that there is a a segment of the body of Christ, there always is, a segment that has been hooked with hunger just like David. There was something planted in their heart 20 years ago and they can't shake it. And there's this thing, God, we've got to have your presence. We've got to have your presence. And I believe there's something going on in the atmosphere where God's going to drop ability, thrones of authority, so to speak, on people that will give them the authority to begin to shift things and allow the presence of God to come. But just like David, in the process... He came to a threshing floor where God had to show him some of the presumption in his heart. Because the presence of God without the fear of God is a very dangerous thing. And this is not merely an old covenant ideal. It was under the new covenant that Paul said, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. It was in... The early church, the book of Acts, after Ananias and Sapphira dropped over dead in church because they lied to the Spirit of God. They lied to the church and lied to the Spirit of God, and they dropped over dead, and it said fear came on people, and they didn't join the ranks of the church after that. You know, they didn't join themselves, but the Lord joined, increased their numbers. So even though there weren't people coming around saying, hey, we just want to come to, you know, kind of check it out. There was a fear on people, but the Lord was adding to their numbers daily, and the church was growing exponentially. The fear of the Lord had come upon them. And it says they grew in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's that tension again. You think, well, Pastor, which is it? "Uh Uh-huh. It's the two sides that enable us to walk this balanced Christian life. The fear of God and the love of God. And I firmly believe that there is another visitation of His presence on the horizon for those who have been crying out. And I firmly believe that this next move is going to bring with it not only a visitation of great power, like the last move of some 20 years ago, But this move is going to bring uh, uh, an outpouring of great authority to the church. I believe there's a facet of God's character that he revealed in this last move of God. That he showed us the love of God, the love of the Father. It was a revival of the Father's love. Where we... We get up on Papa's lap and we snuggle up and know him as Daddy God, and that is foundational, it's necessary, and if you don't have that, you will not be able to sustain what God wants to do in your life. But there's another side to his character that God is going to reveal, and it is going to be the fear of the Lord, the authority of heaven. It's going to restore a fear and a trembling even for his word. There is a famine Of understanding of the Word of God because there is a a horrendous lack of appetite for the Word of God in the body of Christ today and I fear that it's there's even those of us in this room that just don't hunger after the Word of God don't come under condemnation but let it convict you if you aren't hungry for the Word of God there's something wrong It's just like when a person loses their appetite, it's because there's something going on in their body, there's there's a sickness, and and so a sign of being well is when you want to eat again. I talked to Pastor Quimby a couple months ago, I said, how's Miss Sandra doing? I knew she'd been sick. He said, well, she said today, I'm hungry. He said, it's a good sign. What he was saying is she's better, she wants to eat again. This next move is going to restore the authority of heaven. I believe just like this last move, we saw the power of God restored to the church. I've been in ministry for 30 years. Over th- I've, been, I've been in vocational ministry for 30 years. I've been, I've been preaching for well over 30 years. And I'm telling you, there was, there's something different that happened 20 years ago That we broke into something, that ministry was easier afterward than it was before. There's something, signs and wonders began to break out. There was, uh, healings were rare before that time. They're not rare anymore. God restored the power of God to the church. But I believe what's coming is going to, it's going to restore the authority of God. And with that, there is going to be words spoken that will shift things. And words spoken that they'll... I believe that we're coming into a move of God that there are going to be signs in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There are going to be signs in nature at the word of God's people that will be irrefutable. It's going to be things that no man can manipulate and man will have to admit, this is God. But before God can can, uh, delegate that level of authority to people, there needs to be a healthy fear of Him. We need to understand that our loving Father is also a righteous, just judge. He is a righteous, just father. Consider, therefore, the mercy of the, 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 the kindness and sternness of God. The fear of the Lord is a mindset, it's a belief system. Proverbs chapter 2 says, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Listen to this. Well, matter of fact, look at verse 1, one verse there in chapter 1, and then we'll go to chapter 2. Look at verse 29. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. So, what do we know from that verse? The fear of the Lord is a choice. There's a conscious decision that we have to make that says, God, I choose to fear you. How do you choose to fear the Lord? I mean, there's some things we we simply couldn't choose to fear. But God, you have to choose to fear Him. How do we do that? Well, the key is this next passage. Look at chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words. Now, this is Solomon speaking... From his that, that, that he's, it, some, some scholars believe it's David speaking to Solomon and Solomon's reiterating or it's Solomon speaking to his sons. My son, if you accept my word, store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. If indeed you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure, listen to what it says. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. Verse 10 says wisdom will enter your heart. So verse 5 says you will understand the fear of the Lord. The previous chapter says you have to choose it. The fear of the Lord is a mindset. It's a belief system. It's when you break into an understanding that then becomes a lens through which you look at everything else. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want to understand the rest of life? Understand God. Theology is the queen of sciences. When you understand theology, you'll begin to have light into medicine. You'll You'll have light into geology and sociology and every other ology, because it all comes out of that queen of sciences, theology. That's the whole concept behind this thing called a university. A university is the unifying subject, and all the diversity of knowledge is theology. That, as we study God, it brings light and all it brings insight into all these other diverse things. That's why the great universities were established as Christian institutions. Now, what we have today is multiversities where the subjects contradict each other because they've taken out the subject of God, the key to unlock and unify it all. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, the fear of the Lord is when we understand who God really is, and we understand, number one, He's holy. That God is at war with sin because it destroys His creation. And when we realize God's attitude towards sin, we can't look at sin the same way anymore. When we look at where God's word says, thou shalt not, we take it seriously because we realize God's expressing his heart towards it because God is holy. But more than that, God is also omniscient. He knows everything. So God knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows the activities in which we participate so it's not, it doesn't matter what other people know or don't know. It doesn't matter if you see what I do in secret because God does. Nobody may be in the room when I have my hand on the mouse on my computer clicking and all of a sudden a little ad comes up. And I know that if I follow that where it can lead. Nobody else may be looking, but I've got a holy God residing over me that does. And the fear of the Lord will keep me from sin because God is holy and he's omniscient and he's also omnipotent he's all-powerful he has very strong opinions about sin he knows who's participating in it and God is omnipotent he is just he is always balancing the scales of human behavior he can do something about it because he's all-powerful and he will do something about it because he is just the justice of God is that facet of God's nature that's always balancing the scales. To every kick, there's a kickback. If you sow, you will reap. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap destruction. That's New Testament. If you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you reap eternal life. When you do good, you'll be rewarded. When you do bad, there's discipline. And when we begin to realize that, we begin to see sin for what it is. It isn't the blue light special the enemy's tried to sell it as. We realize that is so much more costly than I ever calculated before. Because the Lord of the harvest is personally involved in the laws of the harvest. And I know what I sow I will reap. And that awareness that I have an understanding of the fear of the Lord. It's not just some nebulous thing disconnected from the nature of God. It's a revelation of the nature of God. It's an understanding of the nature of God, and it causes me to live clean. It doesn't cause me to run from God, although in its initial arrival, it may cause me to pause and step back like David did. What it does is it it causes me to draw near. When I consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness, I know the mercy of God, the tender heart of God, His kindness. But I also know the severity is one translation. The sternness of God. And so I get close to Him because I know that's the secret to living holy. I want to live with Him. But there are those bumps in the road where God will suddenly show you another facet of his character you didn't know about before. It's that Isaiah 11 verse where it talks about the seven spirits of God. What is that? There's people that preach that there's really seven spirits, that, God, that there's really ten spirits. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then there's these other 7 uh-uh. Okay, that's not what that's saying. But in fact, you go into 1 Corinthians where, where Paul said, and now... Uh, about spiritual gifts. Really, it's about spirituals. And he said, you are hungry for spiritual gifts. We know those are manifestations of the Spirit. But literally, he's saying you're hungry for spirits. Because the, it's inter- interchangeable, this, this manifestation of the Spirit. And when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 12 there, when he's talking about manifestations of the Spirit, he is talking as much about the human spirit as is the Holy Spirit. When he's talking about manifest. The manifestation gifts are manifestations of the human spirit and the holy spirit in partnership. That's why it says when in regards to tongues in chapter 14, he said, "When I pray in tongues, my spirit prays." He's not saying, "My holy spirit, the spirit is mine." He's not saying it. He's saying my human spirit is praying. He says in regards to prophecy, he says, "The spirit of a prophet is subject to the prophet." He's talking about when you're releasing a word, he said, hey, if it's not appropriate time, sit on that word, because the spirit of a prophet is subject to that prophet. So when he's saying you're hungry for spirits, he's talking about manifestations of the spirit, and it, that same idea is what Isaiah is alluding to, and it also alludes to it in Revelation, the seven manifestations of the spirit of God, one of which is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. God will come in ways that are unexpected to us. And the danger is we can become so familiar with the last way he showed up that we outright reject the next one. And you've got to be oh so very careful. I wasn't here last week, but I heard there were some people starting to laugh and You know, be intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. That is scriptural. I can give it to you out of scripture, but it can also be very offensive to people. And I have watched godly, God-fearing people walk out of services and reject that kind of move of God. And in fact, the speaker last weekend that was used to minister that type of manifestation of the Spirit... Have himself walked out of services offended when people began to laugh. And he thought, that is completely inappropriate, and God would never do that. Only to have the Lord lay him out in Kansas City and say, get ready. And he laughed and laughed and had to be carried out of the service. He's <laughs> repenting and laughing. And... See, the danger is that he was so convinced he knew who God was. I love to just preach hard on Christopher. He was so convinced that he was wrong. He was, he was so convinced he knew who God was that when God arrived in a different manner, he was in danger of rejecting him. You know, on the day of Pentecost, that w- there were those who rejected the move of the Spirit? Yet there are some of us today that say, well, if, if that was really God, I would know it. I mean, if God that just didn't feel right. There were people on the day of Pentecost. You can miss God, not because it's not him, but because it doesn't align with the grid work that you have up till now. I'm not saying we should just drink drink the Kool-Aid at every turn and anytime something happens and someone says it's God, we accept it. I'm saying be cautious. Be careful. Don't miss a move of God Jacob, one of the patriarchs, was asleep under an open heaven and didn't know it. And he said, God is in this place and I knew it not. And we can be slumbering under an open heaven and not know it. I believe that there's a coming move of God That's going to come with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Here's the difference between, I'll close with this. The fear of the Lord is a mindset. It's an understanding of the nature and character of God, and it's believing, and it's saying, God, I choose to live my life. And and that's what, you know why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Because wisdom is living for the long term. Foolishness lives for the moment. The fool says in his heart, let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, I don't even know if I'm going to live till tomorrow, so I'm not going into work today. I'm going to go out and party instead. And then he wakes up the next day with a hangover and unemployed. That's foolish. Now, there's a lot of lesser examples of that, but wisdom is the opposite. Wisdom lives for the long term. It's saying, I'm going to make my decision today based on the long term consequences because I know that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him and he also will discipline me if I get off track. And I don't want to have to come under his discipline, so I'm going to discipline myself. And you begin to live out of Wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. It's an understanding. It's a mindset. You you learn it. You come into it, and you you abide by this. The spirit of the fear of the Lord is different. The spirit of the fear of the Lord is environmental and experiential. Over here, it's internal. The fear of the Lord is internal. It's something you learn. It's something you study. You come to conclusions, and you begin to live yourself out of that internal mindset. It becomes a grid work out of which you interact with life. The spirit of the the fear of the Lord is external and it invades the environment and you may not have chosen the fear of the Lord over here but you don't have to over here because it comes on you. There are times where the fear of the Lord will enter a room. A few weeks ago when Paul Yadah was here, we touched that. I don't know what you were feeling out there, but it was the same thing that I felt when we were in Korea, and the Lord just came in in such power. And people, these Presbyterians who were not Pentecostally predisposed, were on an upper story wood floor, and they just start falling out, no catches, and it was, it was, uh, it was almost eerie. The presence again, i was the poof, 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 poof. they just start hitting the floor, falling out, and they're just out. And I, the fear of the Lord was on me. And Christopher said, "Dave, if you want to come up here," and I didn't move. I thought I don't want to touch this. I just wish I could find a rock I could crawl under and just hide. This is so holy. I don't want to touch it because this is God and I don't want to mar it with my opinions or anything. There was just this fear of the Lord. A few weeks later, here when Paul Yudal was here that Sunday morning, I felt that same thing. And I feel like it's a precursor. It's like, it's like we're feeling him getting nearer, and it's like waves. And I'm telling you, it's time to clean up. Just like Moses told the children of Israel, listen, God's going to come down on this mountain. Get yourself clean and don't touch the mountain. He's going to manifest himself. And God came down and he he caused them to fear and then said, don't fear, because I came just to make you fear so that you'll live out of that. You will not sin anymore. What's coming is God is going to Empower his church to live righteously and a major component of that is the spirit of the fear of the Lord where it comes into the room, and people don't have to choose it. They're in it. And unbelievers that didn't believe in it before are surrendering now because the spirit of the fear of the Lord came. But when God gives that, he first cleans up his bride. He did what David did. You see, David wanted the presence of God, and he was asking a question. Unbeknownst to him, God was already in the business of answering that question. David asked this, how can I ever get the ark of God to me? And what he didn't realize is God was... In Essence was saying, David, you already had the first component. You had hunger. But you didn't have the second component. You didn't have understanding. You didn't respect the ark of God enough to handle it the way I told you to. It was never to be on an ox cart. It was to be carried on the backs of holy men and women. It was was to be carried by the priests, which at that time was men. And so they were going to carry that in. And David was was mishandling the presence. And so God was instilling fear in David's heart. And for 90 days, David was in pause mode. But he began to hear about the blessing on Abinadad's house. He began to hear that his corn was bigger and his watermelons were bigger and his sheep had thicker wool. And there was a hunger for David. David thought, I've got to get near that presence again. And so David counted the cost again. And he went back and he did the research. He said, okay, we're going to do this right this time. And they got the ark of God to them. I believe that the body of Christ right now, many of us are coming to a threshing floor. And that's why you're feeling the dealings of God with your heart. That's why you're beginning to see things in your life you're being convicted of. That's why there's things God's correcting in our lives. Because He wants us to be able to contain what He's going to bring. But it's time for us to deal with us. It's time for us to choose the fear of the Lord. And if you're living in sin, it's time to repent and fall on your face and say, God, help me to overcome this thing. And begin to expose yourself to those who love you. People that love you and and will help you and say, okay, hey, I need to expose this thing in my heart. I I have a pornography problem, or I have I have a a bit I'm bitter with someone, or whatever it is, and get around fathers and mothers in the faith, and say, hey, I need to get over this thing. It's time for me no longer to tolerate this because I want the presence of God to come in to me. Let's stand. Father, Lord, I I just ask God that you would take these principles this morning and drive them home. Lord, I pray that you'd awaken our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd give us An enlightened mind Lord that we would not be like David that we would have hunger that is ignorant Lord we want enlightened hunger that fears you and rightly handles your presence Lord I ask that you would give us revelation of your nature so that we would choose and understand the fear of the Lord and Lord I ask that you would grant us the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Lord, that you would begin to come upon us, Lord, in the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Lord, I ask that we would be those that would have the two lenses of the kindness and sternness of God, and that that tension would keep us on the straight and narrow, Lord. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.